Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast dedicated to showcasing the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. The podcast is generously brought to you by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Linacre College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Eric Shoemaker, a graduate student at the University of Toronto. We'll be talking about Eric's background in philosophy and his extensive experience presenting at conferences, as well as his research on random selection and democratic representation. If after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Eric, you can reach him at eric.shoemaker at mail.utoronto.ca. Eric Shoemaker, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Well, thank you very much for having me. Everybody I find gives a different answer to this question, but I'd be really interested to hear your own thoughts on what it was that got you interested in philosophy. Let's see. Well, in the last year of high school, I'd never really taken a philosophy class, which they're not widely available in Canada at the high school level, as far as I understand it. I started getting into some debates with a friend of mine about the existence of God. And he insisted that I should read The Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals by Immanuel Kant. I have no idea why he thought that was related. Uh, but, but I enjoyed that book enough that, that when I went to do my undergraduate degree at, at the University of Toronto, I decided to take a course in Philosophy 100, which was being taught by Jennifer Nagel. And I enjoyed it so much that, I don't know, I restructured the way I was planning my degree around it. Great. And uh, what is it that made you want to take philosophy further into the graduate level? Yes, well, you know, at the University of Toronto, I, I became involved in this, uh, this undergraduate organization called the Philosophy Academic Society, which kind of helped to plan little talks and events from graduate students at the University of Toronto to come to, to, come to, uh, to give little talks on their research at our, our campus. And, uh, and I found, you know, being in contact with a lot of graduate students, being in contact with a lot of professors, I found I really admired them and, and their work. And, and they seemed to be uh, living the kind of life that, that I wanted to live and pursuing the things that, that I wanted to, uh, to pursue. So it kind of, the decision followed from that. Originally, I'd been planning to go to law school. Uh, and I still applied to law school. And I ended up going to the University of Toronto, both for law and for, for philosophy. They let you do both at the same time, sort of. And I must say, you know, I, I regret the law degree a little bit. <laughs> but philosophy <laughs> has been so much more enjoyable. <laughs> So that sounds pretty interesting. So is that like a PhD in philosophy and a JD in law? It's like a kind of dual degree that you're doing or? Yes, that's right. Yeah, they let you do both simultaneously and it cuts the total work time down by about a year. Although it's still about the same amount of total work, it's just jammed into less time. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, so you literally are just doing two degrees at the same time. That, that must be really intense. Well, for a little while, there was, uh, there was one semester where I had, uh, I think, five 20-page term papers due on the same day, and, and that was a little bit difficult. <laughs> but, but things have gotten easy now that, now that I'm writing my thesis, so, <laughs> yeah. On top of all of that, you're obviously studying at a very large philosophy department at the University of Toronto, with, I think, over 60 full-time faculty members spread across three campuses. So I'd be interested to ask what your experience with that has been. Are there any benefits or costs associated with studying at such a large department? You know, to be perfectly honest, I'm not really sure that I have noticed many of the costs that would be associated with it. And I certainly have appreciated a lot of the benefits. Of course, one of the first benefits is having so many faculty, you have so many people to choose from in terms of your uh, advisors and supervisors when working on your thesis. And there was certainly no shortage of people who seemed to, to have things that they could contribute to the research that I was doing when it came time to pick my committee. And that's wonderful. A second factor of having such a large faculty is that there are so uh, very frequently talks and other sorts of events at, at the philosophy department. 
department for all of the different uh, research areas in which the professors are involved. And the talks themselves are attended not only by uh, a large number of professors who have you know, deep knowledge of the area, but also by other professors as well who are less, less familiar with the specific area of the talk. And I just find I don't often uh, meet a lot of people who, you know, I mean, the faculty being so big, I certainly haven't met every member of it, even at this point, when you when you hunker down to do uh, do your own work. But, but you certainly do appreciate it at the talk, seeing just uh, absolutely huge audiences of philosophers uh, listening to colloquiums and, and things like that, and, uh, and the questions that they can provide as well. So it really, I think, does kind of enhance your experience doing a degree when there are just so many different events to go to and such wonderful commentary happening at those events. Absolutely, I can imagine. Moving on to your doctoral thesis, however, you're currently exploring democracy, elections, and random selection in politics. And I gather you've got some thoughts on some problems that might actually arise from having elections in the political system. So I'd be interested to ask, first of all, what's wrong with elections? Well, I think the first step in understanding what the problem with elections is, is challenging the kind of hegemony that they have over the, the idea of democracy. Oftentimes, when we think of democracy, the idea of elections is so closely tied to it that it's hard to imagine what democracy would look like without it. You know, For example, in the United Nations Charter of Universal Human Rights, I believe, it has a line that says that countries should be governed democratically, which means that they should have fair and free elections determine their rulers, right? So even in documents like these, we tie this notion of election to democracy so closely, you know. But it's important to note that, you know, we all accept, of course, that ancient Athens was democratic as well. And ancient Athens did not really employ elections in the way that it ran itself. And so we accept that democracy can conceptually be separable from elections, right? Well, why, why, why might we want to get rid of elections? There are certainly a lot of problems with democracies today that people notice. People tend to attribute these problems to the first-past-the-post system in the United States and Canada, where we still have this. In countries where they already have proportional representation, people tend to uh, attribute it to party politics, the kind of problems that they face with the, the, the distantness of politicians from ordinary people. But I think these problems are intrinsic to the institution of election itself. You know, We should remember elections are fundamentally a contest to figure out who is most worthy and capable of ruling. Politicians put forward agendas, put forward, I suppose, resumes as a way of speaking to convince people that they are more capable than their opponents of doing a good job as a legislature under some conception, right? And then we empower those people on the basis of the determination, not that they're similar to the people, but that they're distinct from and superior to the people who uh, they're being elected to represent. When we put it that way, it doesn't sound particularly democratic at all, right? And it's important to note that it's for this exact reason that historically it would have seemed very odd to associate democracy with election rather than random selection. Aristotle and Plato, of course, thought that the soul of democracy was randomly selecting legislators rather than electing them. And as recently as Rousseau and Montesquieu had very similar thoughts about the role of election compared to political uh, random selection. Now, what changed really was during the time of the American and French revolutions, the philosophy of John Locke and other similar figures was very influential, who said that the important thing uh, for a government to be of the people was that the people consent to be ruled by that government. And elections were thought of as a procedure for guaranteeing consent. But of course, modernly, 
We know that elections don't actually have a whole lot to do with, with consent. The work of John Simmons and others has kind of shown that, you know, and to illustrate that quickly, if it was the case that you kidnapped me uh, and asked me whether I would like to be tied up with a rope or handcuffed, right? My expressing a preference there and saying, I'd prefer to be handcuffed. That wouldn't indicate any kind of consent to having been kidnapped by you in the first place, right? And elections really take the same form. Uh, not everybody, of course, votes for the winner. A huge amount of people don't vote at all. And even those who do vote for the winner may choose to be doing so strategically, right? And even for those people who do sincerely want the person who they voted for to, to win the election, not just as uh, someone preferable to the alternatives, but as someone who they genuinely think would do a good job, why should we think that their voting for them, which is a, a way of trying to influence who one's representative is, should count as consenting? To be, to be governed uh, by the, the rules made by that person or consenting to have that person legislate on their behalf, right? The real justification for elections that I think people cling to modernly is that elections are justified by majority rule. Elections are democratic because every citizen gets one vote and all of the votes are counted equally. We make the decision about who is elected together as equals. That's the kind of soul of democracy. But if elections are democratic because citizens decide the outcome together as equals, and how on earth could what happens in Parliament be democratic? There are very few, only elite persons get to vote, each one chosen because they defeated their opponents in a contest to see which one of them was superior, more worthy of power, you know, better than the other citizens, right? In Parliament, elite politicians hold way more power than their fellow citizens. If we imagine uh, for a moment that we only let the most uh, worthy elite citizens vote in the elections in the first place, then this would seem not like a democracy at all but like an aristocracy or an oligarchy. Similarly, we could hold an election to choose a king, but that wouldn't make the king's government democratic. Under the current system, people, the people democratically decide who shall rule over them. But a democratic government is not where the people choose their ruler. A democratic government is where the people themselves rule. And I would say that's the problem with elections, fundamentally. The procedure of elections can be democratic, but rule by elected officials is not. So the analogy mentioned, I think it was by Simmons, uh, where you could either be tied up or handcuffed in some way, was the thought there that consent doesn't really make sense uh, when you don't have meaningful alternatives? Um, and I suppose in that vein, uh, how does your talk of political random selection fit, and what would it look like uh, in practice? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, I think what I meant to demonstrate by the analogy is that attempting to influence a system does not entail consenting uh, to that system, right? We, we have modernly, I think rightly, a very restrictive notion of what counts as really consenting, right? And the kinds of things that were held up in the 18th century as counting as consenting, you know, voting in an election or, or simply using public roads, John Locke thought was enough to consent to the laws, right? Now that looks very fishy, considering what we think of consent as entailing modernly. So as for political random selection, it's true that the people wouldn't consent to be ruled by the randomly selected any more than the elected. All that that analogy is meant to show is that consent really isn't the important thing when we're thinking about what makes a chamber democratic, right? In my view, what makes a chamber democratic is when everyone is treated equally in the process of uh, selection for power and where the process itself gives citizens uh, an, equal, an equal influence or an equal chance at influence and corporately, where it preserves the kind of equality between citizens, right? So the thing that's important about a random selection of citizens that would not have been understood in the time of, of James Madison or, or Rousseau so broadly, was that it would produce a random, it would produce a representative sample 
right? It would produce the whole public in miniature, right? And what this means is that um, we should expect statistically that the same proportion of randomly selected legislators for a sufficiently large legislative body of a few hundred persons are blonde, the same proportion of them uh, drive Toyotas, right? The same percentage of them are white, the same percentage of them are plumbers, right? It is the whole public in miniature, right? And so in this way, it's a, it's a much more convenient way than, of course, a full everyone in the country participating type of democracy. But we might think that that kind of democracy is, uh, is not fully possible in the way that we would want it to be, because one of the desirable features of having a smaller body be in charge here is that they would be able to meaningfully deliberate with each other in a way that it would be simply impossible for all of the citizens across the entirety of the country to do. Now, what would a government based on political random selection look like? Well, I'm primarily focusing on legislative institutions for now. And my picture of what that would look like, it would look something similar to the proposal made by Alexander Guerrero in, in his paper Against Elections, the Lautocratic Alternative, or by Terrell Barisius in his paper why hybrid bicameralism is not right for sortition. I believe that's the name. I might, I might have that name wrong. But, but the proposal is roughly this. It would build on the success of citizens' assemblies. So you would have uh, a randomly selected assembly drawn up to determine what pressing issues in need of legislative redress are facing the country presently. And it would select a number of agenda items, and then it would disband after a deliberation about what those agenda items should be. Then we would draw up a separate randomly selected chamber for each of those agenda items. And for each of those agenda items, before the chamber met, there could be public consultations where everyone would have the opportunity to talk about what they thought the problem was and what they thought were appropriate solutions to that problem. There would be experts invited to give testimony to, to the, the randomly selected chamber. How those experts are selected, I don't think it ultimately matters very much so long as we get a diverse array of views in front of the chamber. Maybe they could be, could be brought in by petitions. So people would have a kind of participatory aspect there. They could, you know, they could sign petitions to try and get experts in front of these chambers. And then the chambers would consider the materials of the experts, consider the proposals of the experts, deliberate probably for a few months, and ultimately uh, resolve to cre create a number of possible resolutions for what to do about the problem, including the status quo, and then maybe vote to determine which proposal they choose by perhaps the board account method or, or something equivalent to that, right? They, they would arrive at some kind of decision about what ought to be done. And it's important to remember that in contrast to a number of democratic devices, when we have tried citizens' assemblies in the past, the results that they tend to come to don't tend to be very close, right? It doesn't split 49-51. It, it normally splits much closer to 70-30 or something like that because they arrive at a fair amount of, uh, of consensus at the end of the long period of deliberation about what ought to be done. And then after they pass that, that would pass into law. So that would be the, the legislative procedure. For the executive procedure, I think it's a little bit more complicated. You know, you might think the best thing to do would be to keep an elected executive, but I think people would be right to worry there that having an elected politician would continue to necessitate the existence of political parties in their current form to advance candidates for that position. Uh, you might find that the executive powers increase over time because you would have this very politically savvy, electorally motivated executive who's competing for power and legitimacy against these randomly selected bodies. Really, I think mm -hmm. that what this, uh, this thought reveals is that ultimately, the idea of a unitary executive in one person is not really all that necessary and is fundamentally a kind of hangover from the days, a holdover, I should say, from the days of, of monarchy that you could really have something much closer to a national uh, city manager in their relationship to a mayor, where you could divide 
directed the executive into a number of different top officials, draft a randomly selected committee to supervise that official and have that official be accountable to them and dismissible by them at will. And you could reselect that chamber every six months or so, right? So for example, you could have, instead of having a prime minister, you could just have all of the individual ministers who are each kind of technocratically accountable to a randomly selected body that can dismiss them for misconduct or other reasons and replace them uh, as they like. And so in this way, all the same executive responsibilities could be done without having a chief executive that would have to be elected. And really, I would much prefer a depoliticized executive, right? Currently in the Western world, executive officials often take on a political function because they usurp the authority of the legislative chamber. Now, in countries like the United Kingdom and Canada, this isn't really a problem because, of course, the prime minister also sits in in parliament, right? In the United States, however, the idea of a president having a kind of legislative agenda seems very odd, you know. If the role of the executive is merely to enforce the laws, then there's no reason why the executive should be a political body. It would be much better to just have it be accountable directly to the legislature and, and dismissible for incompetence. Speaking of the United States and, and the nature of legislative power being usurped in that country, we could also find a random selection-based reform for the judicial branch, right? I think that at this point, many people realize that in the United States, to a lesser extent in Canada, and I, I'm afraid I don't know so much about other countries in the world, oftentimes constitutional interpretation is just constitutional legislation under a different name. Fundamentally, many legal scholars agree that there's not much in the way of a single right answer to questions of constitutional interpretation, and that oftentimes constitutional interpretation comes down to, to what the people interpreting the Constitution would like the law to be legislatively. We, we have an article, which I regard as a bit of a smoking gun here in Canada, where I believe Justice Ian Binney, that functionally, the, the job of the Canadian Supreme Court is to interpret the Canadian Constitution. But sometimes the Canadian Constitution says very stupid things. And so in that instance, it should, instead of interpreting it faithfully, it should provide an interpretation of it, which is, is better. And he gives a number of examples of times where he thought that the court was wrong in terms of the, what the law actually is, but was right in the decision that they made because they substituted what really was the constitutional law for what would be, have been a better constitutional law, what the court wished that, that uh, had written. And if that is the case, if that's the truth about what constitutional interpretation is, then there's no reason why that should be done by a court rather than a randomly selected body of citizens. So you could have the same court structure that we do now, but perhaps the Supreme Court could be further appealable to a randomly selected jury of citizens who could consider whether they found the verdict correct. Uh, and if they did not find the verdict correct on matters of constitutional interpretation, substitute its own interpretation of what the law is in that instance. Mm -hmm. Very thought-provoking indeed. Thanks for that, Eric. I also wanted to draw attention to, on a different note, I believe you've been to 11, or rather presented, at 11 different virtual academic conferences this academic year. Very impressive indeed, given that, you know, applications to present at conferences can be pretty competitive. So I guess you'd be the person to ask, how does one maximize their chances of getting accepted to present their research at an academic conference? I think the way that I was able to get accepted to so many conferences was simply by applying to a great number of conferences. My experience of what this process is, is that ultimately, it's a bit of a crapshoot. <laughs> you, you just kind of have to put the paper everywhere and then hope that it gets in. Now, this was an interesting year for experimenting. Given, given that all of the conferences were online, 
I did not really have to be particularly choosy about where I applied. And I went to every single conference that accepted my, my application, right? I did a little bit in terms of tailoring my abstracts to fit the theme of the conference where a theme was present. But a lot of the themes are suitably vague, such as just being a political theory conference in general, that no such tuning could be done. You know, I think one thing that's important to know about a number of conferences is that they, they do co- sort of settle on a theme for papers once they have received the set of applications that they do. And so you might find that even though your paper is considered higher quality by some of the people evaluating the paper, it might nevertheless not get in simply because it is not thematically similar enough to the other papers which they wish to include for the conference. And so this is all to say that if you get rejected from a conference, it probably is more based upon the specific circumstances of the other papers in the pool that were available to the conference, the conference organizers to choose from than your work in particular. Of course, you should be doing everything that you can to make sure that the work is high quality. But even with a very high quality paper, there's no guarantee that you will get into the conference that you aim to, right? And so I think that the thing to do when trying to get accepted to conferences is to simply accept that a lot of it is to fate and not in your hands and try not to take rejections very personally. Because if you become comfortable writing a lot of applications very quickly and and not feeling too bad about rejections when they come, then you'll probably improve your chances overall just in virtue of sending off more applications. Great. And so on that theme, um, what would you say you think is valuable about presenting at conferences? You know, you've done it 11 times, so presumably you think it's uh, quite useful. So what would you say about that? You know, so I think that conferences are an invaluable opportunity to practice the sorts of skills that are very important for graduate students in job seeking. After all, the job talk is an important component of ultimately getting hired uh, and experience public speaking in this very specific context where you're here to present research and you're going to be questioned in detail by, by people who are watching you who are professionally qualified in philosophy. That kind of practice is invaluable. And, you know, there, the quantity has a quality of its own when it comes to that practice, right? You really wish want to be out there doing it as many times as you can. Another thing I have found very helpful is that the University of Toronto has this kind of graduate student program called Grad Forum, where you can sign up for a slot to go give a conference-style presentation in front of your fellow graduate students. And typically, we do this once a week for the entirety of the semester. And there's ordinarily enough slots that everybody who wants to participate in this is free to once per, per term. And if your university does not have one of those, I would absolutely encourage you to start one because it's, uh, it's a wonderful tool for getting practice and kind of building a community among graduate students. And it's a great opportunity to tell your fellow graduate students about what you're researching, which is, uh, which is great in terms of sparking more conversations. And, uh, and those kinds of conversations with fellow graduate students I know are invaluable to the, to the development of your own research, in addition to the development of your public speaking skills. Uh, so in terms of the conferences themselves, yeah, I would say the primary thing that it's valuable for is practice. In an offline environment, you might be able to get a lot more in the way of networking and in the way of talking to interesting people. Very unfortunately, I went to a conference in, in Geneva uh, a few months ago, not in person, of course, <laughs> where I was in a room with uh, with two other presenters, and they both were presenting topics to do with political random selection. And I was there to talk about something completely different, which was uh, a <laughs> hilarious coincidence. But, but if that conference had been in person, I'm sure that we would have spent hours and hours talking to each other back and forth about these issues. Unfortunately, in the online format, we weren't able to do that. And so there's definitely something valuable in terms of what you can get out of in-person conferences that's simply not there 
for online conferences. But but I would still encourage people to try and go to as many online conferences as they can because uh, that kind of public speaking experience is, is incredibly uh, important as a kind of professional development tool. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. Thank you.